Father, would you help us with John to behold the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. This morning, would you fill our hearts with joy at that reality that we can truly see this Jesus with our spiritual eyes and even become messengers of his like John. We pray that you would uh, work this truth into our heart this morning. Speak through me, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. For born on the night wind of the past, through all our history to the last, in the hour of darkness and peril and need, the people will waken and listen to hear the hurrying hoofboots of that steed and the midnight message of Paul Revere. Those are the last lines from Henry Wadsworth Longfellow's uh, poem, Paul Revere's Ride. You, you know that. Maybe in school you learned about Paul Revere. He's a really important historical figure. And one night in April 18, 1775, he rode through the night in the Massachusetts countryside and rode into the pages of history. Because a very important messenger brought a very important message. Maybe you know it as, the British are coming. That's a really important message, and it's good that we remember the story of Paul Revere. He was a very courageous and brave man. But let's be honest, as uh, significant as his message was, it's not one that has a lot of relevance today, does it? I don't know about you, but I'm not worried about the Redcoats coming to invade New England. Not worried about our friends across the pond trying to take over here. There was a, a message that had a significance at a particular point in time. So Paul Revere will live forever in history, but really his message was only relevant for a short period. This morning we have a different sort of messenger. One who's not just a footnote in history, but one who had the great privilege of ushering in the pinnacle of all history. A one-of-a-kind messenger with a one-of-a-kind message one that still resounds today. This morning we get to look at the testimony of John the Baptist, the one who had the privilege of introducing us to God's Messiah, Jesus Christ. As we look at this passage in front of us in John 1, 19 through 34, we'll see that John really is a one-of-a-kind messenger. He has a unique place in history, and, and he has a one-of-a-kind message. Indeed, the most important message this world has ever received. But amazingly enough, we'll be able to carry that message forward ourselves. His message still resounds today. We'll see that in three sections. In 19 through 28, we'll look at the one-of-a-kind messenger, John the Baptist. And then in 29 through 34, we'll look at his one-of-a-kind message, that Jesus is the Messiah. And then finally, we'll apply this message to ourselves. We'll see how this message still resounds today through those who pick it up and carry it forward. That Jesus is the Messiah. We get to declare that too. Let's begin by looking in verses 19 through 28 at the one of a kind messenger. As we've been studying John's gospel, we have been in what's called the prologue, verses 1 through 18. You can think of it as a, a long introduction that sets up the whole book. It gave us the heaven's eye view of what it meant for Jesus to come into this world as its savior. Now, verses 19 through really most of the rest of the book till we get to the end, 
we're going to be going through narrative or they're essentially stories, true stories of Jesus. And at the very beginning of these narratives, we are introduced to the one who had the privilege of introducing the great one, Jesus. We're introduced to John the Baptist. Now, John has already introduced John the Baptist before. And back in verses 6 through 8, he told us about John, that he was a man sent from God. He wasn't the Christ, but he was sent to bear witness about him. Then in verse 15, we're reminded again about John the Baptist. He's brought him up a couple times. You may be asking, why such emphasis on this man that's not himself Jesus? That's the answer is because John is the most significant messenger in history. He gets to introduce the very pinnacle of all of human history, the, the focal point of everything that came ushering in of Jesus. Remember how it is that John came onto the scene. God's people were in quite a tight spot. Uh, they had lived through calamity after calamity. They had gone off into exile, their best and brightest, taken off to Babylon and Assyria. They had been under the thumb of one tyrant after another. Most recently, the Greeks and then finally the Romans. They were longing waiting for the day when they would have once again this full-throated ability to worship and live for God. All right, they had a temple to worship in, but no one really thought that this was it. They were longing for God's chosen one to come and rescue them. It's in that sort of context, this longing, waiting for God to act, that was multiplied their, their misfortune because the voice of God had actually ceased. It had been 400 years since the last prophet. God's people were really starting to run out of hope. And then an old priest won the lottery. He finally got his day to go lead the prayers in the temple. And it was on that day that God spoke again through an angel. He told this old priest who didn't have any children that he, would have a, he and his wife would have a son, and, and he wouldn't just be any son. He would be a great, great man that did things for the Lord. He would be a prophet himself. He would come in the spirit and power of Elijah. He would turn the hearts of the children back to their fathers. He would be a Nazarene from the day he was born. That son was John the Baptist. If you fast forward to how his ministry started, he shows up like a thunderclap on a silent night. He's out in the wilderness. He's wearing a prophet's getup, camel's hair, and eating bugs and honey. And you want to talk about someone that could thunder. This is like a prophet of old. He was denouncing the sins of all types of people, religious or otherwise, powerful or weak. He was calling people to turn back to God in repentance and baptizing them as a symbol of that act. We're told in the other Gospels that John was so effective that all of Judea was going to him to be baptized. You, you might say that he was the flavor of the month. At school, everyone was talking about him. He's trending on Twitter and Facebook. All the news outlets have breaking news. John the Baptist is at it again. So our narrative starts with a not unexpected eventuality. 
a group of the powerful religious people of the day are checking out this thunderbolt of religious energy. Verse 19, and this is the testimony of John. When the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, who are you? The religious leaders in Jerusalem get wind of John because how could you not? And they begin wondering, is this someone we need to worry about? So they start a little fishing expedition. They get some, their best investigators together, say, go, go see what you can find. Let's make sure we're out in front of this one in case there's anything we need to do to put a lid on this. So they come and they ask him, who are you? And laden within that question is really, what are you up to? Who are you? They're, they're asking him, John, are you about to try and start a rebellion? At this day and time, there was a huge, what they call messianic expectation. The Jewish people were a bit of a powder keg. There was such hatred for the Romans and so much longing for their former glory as a, as a, a nation under God that all it would take was the right leader to come at the right time. And everyone knew they would have a following in an instant to try and overthrow the Romans. That was a threat to the Romans, but it was also a threat to the religious leaders. They knew if that were to happen, the Romans would crack down and they would crack down hard. So these people come asking John, John, who are you? Really asking him, John, are you about to claim the title of Messiah for yourself? There have been others that have done so. It's not a dumb question to ask. John clearly understands what it is they're asking because of the way he responds. Verse 20, he confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. He spoke clearly. The way it's written, it's obvious he spoke forcefully. He left no doubt. This is not me. I am not claiming the mantle of Messiah for myself. But they're not satisfied with that. They continue their questioning. Verse 21, they asked him, what then? Are you Elijah? Again, he responds, I am not. Now, it may seem like an odd question to ask, why Elijah? You've got to remember back to the final prophet, Malachi. The, the way the final word from the Lord ended is recorded for us in Malachi 4, 5, and 6. If you have your Bible, maybe flip over there. Otherwise, just listen as I read it. God spoke through the prophet Malachi and said, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of, of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. In that prophecy, God promises that a great prophet will arise. Elijah is coming back. Jews in Jesus' day were divided how they interpreted that. Some thought that meant that Elijah would be reincarnated, that Elijah had died when he went up in the fiery chariot. Others thought that Elijah had survived that encounter, that he was still living in heaven, and God would send him back down from heaven. But pretty near the top of the consciousness of a religious Jew of the day was this concept, Elijah would come back. And when he comes back, that's the signal. It's time for God's people to move forward. It's time for God's victory over our oppressors. They asked him then, okay, you're not the Messiah. 
but are you the one that we're supposed to rally behind that will bring the Messiah with him? John answers no. And that's a very interesting question of why John answers no. We'll circle back to it in just a moment. They continue their questioning. Are you the prophet? And he answered no. Uh, One interesting thing to notice is that John's answers get progressively shorter. Starts off with, I'm not the Christ. No, I am not. And then finally just, just no, just stop. Like, no, just, I, I'm not, this is not what you're asking. It's not the case. Uh, this case, it's a, a reference to Deuteronomy 18. God promised Moses that there would be a prophet that would come after him like Moses, and the people must listen to this prophet. And Jewish thought of the day, they expected this prophet to rise up, and again, that he would be a herald of the final day. It wouldn't take much to light the match that would set off the powder keg of the Jewish people at this moment. And the religious leaders want to know, John, are you trying to light that spark? John is clear. He says, no, not what I'm here to do. I'm not the Messiah. I'm not here to get a following to overthrow the Romans. You can see that they're not satisfied with his answer when verse 22 comes. You can almost see the vain popping out from their throat as they say it. They said to him, who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? John, you can't just deny. Tell us positively, who are you? And that's when John finally gives a self-explanation of who he is. John's answer is, I am simply a voice. I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. Now, that's a quotation from Isaiah 40, verses 3 through 5. We read it as part of our call to worship. In it, someone kind of off camera, who doesn't do anything else, simply cries out and says, it's time to start the highway project through the desert. Knock down all the hills, fill in all the valleys, make the way prepared for the Lord. It's a passage describing Israel's eventual return from exile. Remember, to be a Jew in this day, even though some of the people had come back from the land, the glory of the Lord had never returned. The best and brightest never came back. They had intermarried with the people of the land. The the glory of the nation was never restored. So people knew Even though the exile was sort of over, it wasn't really. In Isaiah, the prophet looks forward to the day when God's people would be called back, when the exile would truly be over. And John says, uh, Isaiah in that day realized that one called for the preparation of this road through the desert, and that's who John is. Who is John then? He's just simply a messenger. He's just someone that carries forward the message that the Messiah is about to arrive. We need to prepare. He's an incredibly significant figure. We need to return to that question of why does he deny that he is Elijah? Now, if you know your Bible well, you may know that in uh, Matthew 11, Jesus actually expressly says that John the Baptist is Elijah. So what is it that 
why, why would he deny before the Jews that he's Elijah if Jesus would later say he is Elijah? Even the prophecy that was given to his father on that day he met the angel in the temple, uh, he was told he would come in the spirit and power of Elijah. Now, I don't know about you, but I think it's unlikely that he never heard that. Uh, There are three alternatives you could take. You could think that John is just ignorant of the fact that he's actually Elijah. Um, You could think that he just never was told, never connected the dots. Um, It could also be that Maybe he's not ignorant of this fact, but maybe he realizes that the people are asking something other than what's actually true. That their conception of Elijah coming back was one of a a political figure that would rally the troops. And he knew if he answered yes to that, that immediately they would put him in the category of, of one that needs to be put down to a rebellion to be quashed. I think what he is doing here is very shrewd. I think John realizes he is not Elijah reborn, and yet he is fulfilling that prophecy of Elijah. He answers in such a way that's truthful, but gives the religious leaders no room to go back and say, we need to stamp out this guy before he causes too much trouble. Well, that's not enough for this delegation from Jerusalem. They're they're not satisfied with the answer that he's giving because whether he's claiming the mantle of Messiah or some other end times figure or not, he's still causing all sorts of religious trouble. So in verses 24 and following, they ask one final line of questions. It's really questioning his authority. Verse 24 tells us that there was a group of Pharisees that was a part of this delegation And they ask him, then why are you baptizing if you're neither the Christ nor Elijah nor the prophet? It's really a question of saying, what right do you have to be doing what you're doing? That question of authority is an important one. I had a friend who was caught speeding uh, in a national park. He's one of those people that has a lead foot. You know, everywhere he's going, he's speeding. And so he's in a national park, and he was speeding, and uh, a ranger pulled him over. You know, park service vehicle and everything, headlights, pulled him over. And my friend's like, oh, you got to be kidding me. Getting pulled over by a ranger. So the guy comes up, he says, hey, do you know how fast you're going? And, and he says, uh, yeah, I do. What are you going to do about it? Well, the ranger, understandably, was not pleased with that response. He said, I'll tell you what I'm going to do about it. And he took out his pad that allowed him to write tickets and checked the most expensive box on that ticket. My friend went home learning a very valuable lesson of authority. The people are really asking John, John, where do you get the right to baptize? Now, in our ears, that may sound odd. Why would they be so hung up on the fact that he was baptizing? Well, John's baptism didn't fit in the religious Jewish mind for three reasons. First, it was being done to Jews. There was a type of baptism that went on back then. Um, Oftentimes when people converted to Judaism, they would take a, a ceremonial washing. And so it was thought of baptism was something that Gentiles do to become Jews. John, on the other hand, is he's baptizing Jewish people. That doesn't seem right. Well, secondly, it's a, a baptism that's needed by everyone. There were some times that Jews would be baptized, 
but it would be in a special mark of contrition. It would be like putting on sackcloth and ashes of showing that you would really, really sin before God. John here is calling everyone to be baptized. The religiously connected or not, everyone needs to repent and come back to God. Third, John himself is baptizing people. Both those examples of baptisms were self-administered. It was something you would do for, your, for yourself. It was a, a, a way you showed your contrition to God and no one else could help you in this process. And yet John has the audacity to tell us we all need to be baptized and say he needs to be the one to do it. That leads to a very important question. John, whose authority do you do this on? John's answer is that there's one with authority that you can't even imagine. He tells them it's one who you do not know. In verse 26, that it's an allusion to the fact that uh, later on, as John will develop, the religious leaders would miss Jesus. But then in verse 27, it says, Even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I'm not worthy to untie. In other words, one so much greater than me, it's a bigger gulf than it is between the lowliest servant and the, big, the highest king. One that's so much greater than me is whose authority I'm doing this on. He doesn't say it outright, but he clearly is talking about Jesus. This incredible boldness, clarity, and shrewdness, and humility shown by John as he faces down this religiously connected, powerful group and tells them, I am just a messenger. He's a one-of-a-kind messenger. But what, he's only one of a kind, and he's only so significant because of the message he has. And that's what we see in the next section, verses 29 through 34. We get, we get a scene shift right there in verse 29. The next day, he saw Jesus coming toward him. Now, I don't know about you, but there are times where you know you've just gone through something very significant. Maybe it's passing a really significant test. Maybe it's right after your wedding day. You just get the sense that life as you know it will be different from here on out. Just put yourself in John's position for a moment. Imagine what it is that's going through his heart and his mind after staring down those religious leaders. He knows why he's been sent. His whole life has been in preparation for one day that he knew, knows is drawing near. Finally, he has been forced to, to testify in some sort of a clear way who he is. And he must have known his day's coming. Any moment now, any day now, any week, Jesus is going to be revealed to the nation. Verse 29 shows us that moment. The next day he saw Jesus coming toward him, and he said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. John's dream of a thousand nights. John's purpose for living. John's joy of all joys in that one sentence is complete. He's done what he's come to do. He tells us in 29, he also says it in 34 in a different way. He says, I have seen and have borne witness that this is the Son of God. Both, both of these ways of describing Jesus, the 
the Lamb of God and the Son of God are ways of saying Jesus is the Messiah we have been waiting for. We're going to come back to what the, those uh, lines mean in just a second. But before we do that, we need to look at what's in between them. Because John specifically gives us the two ways he arrived on, at this day in between these two statements of Jesus as the Messiah. He arrived here by way of a ministry of preparation and a gift of revelation. First, he shows us his ministry of preparation, verse 30 and 31. This is he of whom I said, after me comes a man who ranks before me because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came baptizing with water that he might be revealed to Israel. John, again and again, will reiterate that he is not Jesus. He's not the Messiah. He, he reiterates, this was the guy I was telling you about before, whose authority I'm doing all these things on. And then he tells us that all of his ministry has been for this purpose. He says, this is the reason I've been baptizing, to reveal him to Israel. How did his baptism do that? You can think of John as a sledgehammer that broke down the defenses of the heart of the Jewish people in preparation for them to receive Jesus. John was the bad news before the good news. He was the one who came and said that your sins before God are a problem, that you think you're all right, but you're not, that you need to repent, to turn from your sin and turn, turn back to God because he's about to send the one that can actually deal with your sin. John was a faithful messenger with a hard word, one that one day he would lose his head over. His ministry was a one of preparation, and that preparation was for this day. Secondly, he tells us of the gift of revelation in 32 and 33. Tells us how it is he knows that Jesus is the Messiah. He says, I myself did not know him, but this purpose I came to Israel baptizing with water. He reiterates, he didn't know this himself. Then 32, and John bore witness, I saw the spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. I myself did not know him. The second time he said that, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, he on whom you see the spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. So first, John quickly admits his ignorance. I didn't know him twice. But God revealed him to me. And the way he did it was I saw the Spirit descend on this man like a dove. Now that's clearly a reference to Jesus' baptism. If uh, you read the other Gospels, you know that moment. John actually didn't think it was proper to baptize Jesus. He had some sense that Jesus was a righteous man. And yet Jesus insisted, said, it's, it's important to do this to fulfill all righteousness. And as he came up from the water, something like a dove came and rested upon him, the Holy Spirit, fulfilling the prophecies that God's chosen one, his anointed one, would have the Spirit of the Lord upon him. That was a, a flashing neon sign to John. This is the one you've been waiting for. John also tells us that God told him that his ministry would be surpassed by Jesus, that his baptism was just a precursor, just a, an appetizer to the main meal of the baptism Jesus would have. 
The difference between the two baptisms, John's is with water, Jesus' is with the Holy Spirit. There's been a lot of discussion about what it means to be baptized with the Holy Spirit. If you look at Ezekiel 36 with me, if you have your Bible flipped there, I think it's pretty obvious what John and what God means by this baptism of the Holy Spirit. Ezekiel 36, look with me in verses 25 through 27. Ezekiel 36, verse 25 through 27. Prophet Ezekiel says, I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness. And from all your idols, I will cleanse you. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. Ezekiel looks forward to a day when God would do something he had not done yet with his people, when he would transform them from the inside out. We call that regeneration. The work God does within us to remake us, to make us a new creation in Jesus. He takes out your old heart and gives you a new one. The Holy Spirit is how he does that, and that same spirit now lives within you. See, John could tell us that we were in need of forgiveness of sins, in need of repentance, and yet he couldn't himself forgive our sins. He couldn't himself make us those who are obedient to God's law. Yet Jesus could. All of us who are Christians have experienced that baptism of the Spirit on the day we came to believe that Jesus is the Son of God. John uses the language of baptism to describe the new life we have in Christ. All of this is support for his main message, the, the message that it is unique to John and that still resounds through all history, that Jesus is the Messiah. I, I told you we'd come back to those two phrases. Uh, the, the second of those phrases, the Son of God, we, we all actually unpacked that pretty thoroughly the last few weeks. I, I won't belabor that point. It's to say that Jesus has a unique place and relationship to God the Father. Um, as John, the prologue to God, John makes clear, he is truly God from eternity past, come now as the God-man on this earth. By taking the title, the, the title of Son of God, he is unique. He is the only one that can take this mantle due for the Messiah. That phrase, Lamb of God, though, that takes away the sin of the world is the one we're going to focus on now. It's such a rich title applied to Jesus. We, several of the songs we sang this morning used it. In the Bible, lambs are unbelievably significant. You can think back to Abraham and Isaac marching up the mountain, and Isaac's saying to Abraham, Father, where is the lamb for the sacrifice? And Abraham's saying, God himself will provide it. You can think of the Passover lamb, where God's people took a, a little lamb and that was spotless and perfect and, and killed it and used its blood to paint the doorpost so that the wrath of God through the destroying angel would pass over their household. Or you can think of the sacrifices daily in the temple and of the special days where the lambs would be killed as a sacrifice for sins. 
All of these images are surely in the background of John's mind. I think Isaiah 53, though, is probably the one he's most in his mind. That's the one that we tend to talk about at Christmas time, but like a lamb before uh, being led to the slaughter is silent, like a sheep before his shearers, describing Jesus as the suffering Messiah that would come. I think John had in mind that Jesus was this Messiah, and in some way his suffering would usher in this new reign of God. But I'm not sure that John really understood what it meant that Jesus would take away the sins of the world. I think this is one of the cases we'll see a lot of in John's gospel where someone speaks far better than they know. Because in John's day, there was an expectation that the Lamb of God would be a warrior, that the Messiah would come and conquer all their enemies. And as we'll find out later when John himself is in prison, even he begins to doubt, is Jesus really the one we've been waiting for. And yet for as little as John may have actually understood, his message still resounds today. It's more true than he could have ever known. Jesus is the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. That's really the gospel in short form, isn't it? that we were so lost in our sins and the wrath of God so surely to come upon us that God had to send his own son Jesus to be our sin bearer, to take our sins and be punished in our place on the cross so that we can now be declared right in God's sight. That this is an offering not just for Jews, not just for the religious, but for anyone that would trust in this Jesus. That's the message of John. The message that resounded in his day and on the other side of the cross now resounds with even more depth that Jesus is the answer for this world. One of the things that I love about John the Baptist is he's one of the figures in the Bible that you can pretty close to draw a straight line from his life to yours. You have to be very careful when you're reading your Bible of trying to just learn lessons from biblical characters like King David or Samuel or anyone else. We have to realize where we stand in relation to the cross and that history God has unveiled for his people. But John the Baptist, since his role was one as a messenger, even though we are not John the Baptist, we're all called to follow in his footsteps. This brings us to our final point. See, the reason why John the Baptist's message still resounds today is that we are all called to carry his message forward. John is long gone. He lost his head after tangling it with Herod. And yet every single time a church gathers and celebrates the Lord's Supper, his message is still preached. Jesus' body was broken. His blood was poured out. He was the lamb that was sacrificed for our sins. Every time one of us shares the gospel with a neighbor or a coworker or a family member, John's message rings out again with a fresh resonance because his message is still true. Jesus is the only hope, the lamb of God. That means we can learn from John. So if you would indulge me, 
There's four principles I want us to take from John the Baptist this morning. First, we must be bold in carrying forward this message. Yesterday, a number of families came, and we had a really awesome event outside. We, we went getting all muddy in the woods, uh, learning about trees and leaves. Uh, Chad Jaggard, if you're here, thank you for putting that event on. We learned a lot about nature, and there was a craft that they did that my daughter Lillian was kind enough to lend me. Um, it's a, a lion, and then underneath it, it has a quote from Proverbs 28.1. It says, The wicked flee th though no one pursues, but the righteous are bold as a lion. It's a great, great verse. And I think John's life personifies that. When you know you're doing something on God's behalf, with the right heart, you're being faithful, you can be incredibly bold, can't you? Each of us have opportunities to share the gospel, whether it's someone in line at the checkout, someone you work to day in or day out, or even their kids that you are putting to bed at night after you're exhausted. Each of us have an opportunity to take John's message and allow others to hear it. When you feel that little tug that maybe you ought to be talking about Jesus, John's example shows us, friends, you need to be bold to do it. You can stare down the connected, the powerful. You could even lose a friend or two, and it'd be totally fine. Because you were sent to be a witness to Jesus. Second, he was shrewd. Jesus himself tells us to be Innocent as doves and wise as serpents. Uh, John, everything John said was true, and yet he did not say everything to everyone. He didn't give the religious leaders a reason to think that he was here as some sort of political figure to grab power and overthrow the Romans. We can learn a lot from his example of knowing when to press a hard word and when to give a gracious one. When to expose the folly of someone's thinking that they might come to their senses, and when to tell a story of God's grace. We need to be shrewd as we're, as we're witnesses for Jesus. And if you're not in the habit of praying regularly, that God would know, give you that right balance of when to press and when to hold back, let me tell you that you need to be doing so. Third, John shows us humility. Time after time, he had opportunity to take glory from himself, and time after time, he pushed the spotlight to Jesus. How easy it is to take credit for that which we should give glory to God. I was convicted even the last couple of weeks as I was sharing with people my testimony, how often it sounded like I was the hero of the story and I had to go out of my way to talk about what Jesus did in our lives. We should be saying over and over again, let me tell you about what Jesus did for me. Finally, we should learn from his longing and joy. John had a, a long lead up to this day, but what joy he had once it came. He describes it like the bridegroom, the, the, like the best man seeing, the, uh, his, seeing the, the groom finally reach the wedding day, the, realizing that he allowed this moment, was part of this moment happening, and that his purpose is now complete. Friends, every time you share the gospel, you will find a burst of joy. It doesn't mean you do it right every time. It certainly doesn't mean people get converted every time. But you get an inner sense that I just did what I was put on this earth for, to be a witness to Jesus. 
John was a one-of-a-kind messenger. None of us are John the Baptist. And he had a one-of-a-kind message. Amazing thing is we get to pick it up and carry it forward. So it resonates through all of history. Open with telling you about Paul Revere. Again, a fascinating man, very significant in the life of our country. It's right that we remember him as a hero. And yet, when you do some research, you'll find that Paul Revere's ride has been romanticized in a way that's frankly not true. Uh, it turns out that he didn't go through multiple towns crying out the British are coming. Uh, he made it into one town, but the signal had already reached it by another route that he had set off through some lanterns. And when he finally got a chance to deliver his message, it wasn't this dramatic moment, this hero proclaiming what was to come. In fact, he was stopped by the doorman. He rode up to warn his, warn his friends, Sam Adams and John Hancock, and as he arrived, there was a sentry or guard at the house. It was middle of the night, and he stopped Revere and wouldn't let him inside. Revere started arguing with him. I need to talk with him, and he got so loud that the sentry told him, please keep it down. People are sleeping, and Revere uh, uh, responded, noise? You'll have noise enough before long. The regulars are coming out. Now, it's an important message that he delivered, but not one with enduring relevance. And yet we have the privilege of following in the footsteps of the one-of-a-kind messenger with a one-of-a-kind message that still resonates today because Jesus is the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. Let's pray.